Arts, Lifestyle, SNS Online. Oh, 30 seconds. Oh, God, oh, who wants my microphone? Very good. Right, if you wouldn't mind uh, enjoying yourself. Here we go. Stand by, please. Today's special guest is undoubtedly the most celebrated consumer journalist in the UK, if not the world, as well as a well-renowned and familiar presenter, producer and writer. The two charities she created, Childline and The Silver Line, have literally proved to be a lifesaver for untold thousands, whilst her award-winning investigative television work over the decades, particularly on BBC One's That's Life, that regularly got 18 million viewers during its 21-year run, have helped aim the spotlight on all manner of disparate topics, featuring corrupt door-to-door salesmen, the dog that could say sausages, hedgehog crisp tasting sessions, Richard Stettel and his dancing dentures, remember that one, and numerous jobs worths, whilst also reigniting the need for donor cards as an NHS lifeline and reuniting children destined to die in Nazi gas chambers in the Second World War with the man who rescued them, Nicholas Winton, later Sir Nicholas. She also discovered megastar songstress Sheena Easton and was once arrested in the streets during a pre-recorded item about the great British public's verdict on bat soup. Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together and give it up for a genuine television icon and national treasure, Dame Esther Ransom. Dame Esther Ransom, television presenter, producer, journalist, writer, campaigner, style icon, icon, <laughs> jungle survivor, strictly dancer, charity creator, oh sorry, charities creator, there's two of them, I don't know if that's a good English, daughter, wife, mother, impossibly glamorous grandmother, and I suspect uh, you make a mean souffle as well, welcome to SNS Online. Yeah, you're quite wrong about the souffle, <laughs> I am a truly terrible cook. Oh, I used to cook more in my teens because I was sort of interested and feeling creative and things. But when I went out to work and was pretty exhausted by the time I got home, I didn't find that exhaustion and cookery go well together. So um, I haven't quite got to the ready meal stage yet because I worry about what they put into those. Yes, absolutely. Uh, but I, I'm afraid I do spend quite a lot of time balancing cheese on biscuits. <laughs> That's the height of my culinary um, skill, really. Right. Well, we have that in common anyway. Um, just to say that my wonderful parents, who were devoted viewers of That's Life, would be so proud that I'm here today to speak to you. Unfortunately, they've, uh, they've died and gone to Hendon, but uh, they, would be, they would be very proud. <laughs> well, that's, that's nice, and uh, they'll meet a lot of nice people in Hendon. Yeah. Um, you know, Cyril Fletcher from That's Life, yes. and Bernard Braden, who created Braden's Week, mm. um, which was my first consumer show, and of course my late husband will be there, and my parents will be there, so doubtless they'll be... Sipping whatever, ambrosia, I suppose, yeah. rather than Prosecco. But 
I'm sure they'll be enjoying themselves. Are you are you religious at all? Not even slightly. <laughs> Have been. In when I was cooking, I was also religious in my teens, but something happened to make me a little bit sceptical about all the various answers to the questions we pose about what life is about and how it started and when will the world end and what happens after death. And I, I couldn't find any answers to that. So I'm, I'm interested in religion. I'm interested in the problems caused by religion. I once went on to a program on a Sunday, actually, and next to me there was... Um, uh, quite uh, fanatical um, Islamist, and in the audience there was an equally fanatical Zionist, and they started to get at each other. And after a while, I was asked my view, and I said, thinking people were going to throw things at me, if I were God, I think I'd ban religion. And I got a round of applause. Yeah. I think a lot of people feel that way. You know, whether or not you have faith, what is happening in the name of faith is sometimes really evil. Oh, absolutely. I'm going to take you back to your early days. I don't think it's a secret because it's on your Wikipedia. You were born in 1940 in the second year of the Second World War. And now, even though you were very young, do you have any recollections of that time? I certainly do. I've got one of those memories that goes back to when I was 18 months old. Wow. Do not ask me about last week. But certainly in about 1943, 44, I can remember... Um, I can remember air raid sirens. I can remember practicing putting on gas masks, taking cover under the dining room table. I can remember my grandmother, we live with my grandmother, struggling with blackouts over the window. Um, I can remember rosehip syrup. I remember rosehip syrup. (laughs) And, uh, And that strange black malt stuff, which was rather delicious. And, um, pickled eggs, which were not delicious, and nor were... Winter apples, you know, the apples that you wrap in newspaper and think you can eat three months later and are all wrinkly and horrible. (laughs) So not that I'm against wrinkles, as you will understand, but when it happens to apples, I'm not that keen. (laughs) So I do remember, and I remember my father, when I asked him what an air raid siren was, he said it was a warning that German aeroplanes were coming over. Um, to drop bombs. My my mother was furious with him for telling me that. And I said, well, are we going to die? And he said, no, because the British pilots are going to go up and stop them. And that, I think, must have been the Battle of Britain. And so when they were celebrating their anniversaries, I was quite vocal about the, the extraordinary courage of those 19-year-olds, not only English, but Canadian and Polish, that went up, you know, losing friends every sortie they did, but turning back the Luftwaffe. And if they hadn't, you would not be talking to me now. Because as a Jew, I would, of course, uh, been immediately consigned to a, a British concentration camp. The thought is horrific for Britain and, you know, would have been very tragic for my whole family. Oh, that's what they're thinking about, is it? You studied English at Oxford, but were quite heavily involved in the Dramatic Society and Oxford Theatre Group. Could we have possibly lost you as a presenter and seen you on the silver screen if things had been different? Never. (laughs) I was a truly terrible actor. Really bad. Um, So I did it in the knowledge that I would never, 
ever be able to do it professionally, but it would be fun to do as a student. And I did some writing for reviews and things, and I did some directing and producing for reviews and things, and we went up to Edinburgh and performed at the festival. So I did do quite a lot of performance, and I suppose that's why, when eventually Bernard Braden came to the BBC with a consumer programme, people thought that I could have a go on the, you know, actually in the programme on screen. You're listening to the BBC. So just talking about your initial route into the BBC, mm. I mean, particularly with times past, did you find your sex a barrier in making moves in the corporation? Well, I joined radio in studio management, a job you know well. Mm, absolutely. Um, I don't know how you've, you've, you've done it for some time. It's been thousands and thousands of years, Esther. I did it for two years. That was enough. Um... And there were quite a lot of women studio managers, probably still are. Less so now, for some reason. Really? Mm. Don't know why. No, I don't. There were then. Um, And there were women secretaries who sat behind machines called typewriters. And uh, there were some researchers in television who were women, but none above that level. I think there was one producer, woman producer, There was one senior woman who was head of department. She was a ferocious dragon. And there was one senior woman who was in programme planning, and she was the person that got me into television behind the scenes. So um, women just... There were no women reporters in Panorama. There was no suggestion that there should be. I took part in one of those programmes about television. Someone put me on a panel... And I remember talking to a viewer who was giving her view, she was a nurse, that women lacked authority on the screen and therefore there would never be a woman newsreader. <laughs> so I said, did her matron lack authority? And uh, Oh, well played, Esther. Thank you very much. <laughs> and shortly afterwards, Angela Rippon became yeah. one of the very first women newsreaders. It was extraordinary. This dragon lady I referred to took the view that if women had to read a sad story on the news, they'd burst into tears. <laughs> oh, it's quite, quite an entertaining thought. Just to mention that we had Billy Baxter on last year as part of the 60th anniversary of Blue Peter. Now, obviously her Ruth into BBC was quite different because she was working in children's TV, which wasn't really recognised uh, at the time. And so she was pretty well left to do what she wanted. So her attitude was it was very equal opportunities and there were no issues at all. But obviously going to consumer affairs, a little bit different. Yes. Good old Biddy. She mm. is completely wrong. There, it, when you were in any sort of adult factual television, there was a huge prejudice against women. Um, above the level of researcher. Mm. Biddy started as studio manager. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, she was a legend. Mm. On hot days, she would make sound effects wearing not much. Ah. Did you not know that? For some reason, she didn't mention that. She was renowned for making sound effects wearing only a bikini. Wow. She did tell me a story about um, one of those uh, uh, big 
blind things but sort of crashed on some poor actress who was sort of knitting and um, wasn't looking where she was going anyway yeah well these things happened quite a lot but um in fact there was a lot of prejudice against women in any senior role um so i was quite rare when i started to present be a reporter and a, a presenter and that actually was a huge advantage because Obviously, I had to uh, find favour with the viewers. That was a challenge. If I failed, others would fail. I had a responsibility to other women. But it did mean that I got quite a lot of publicity, quite a lot of opportunities, because there weren't many of my gender around. So just going through it, research on, on BBC Three, which was a satire programme, not the channel, uh, current affairs programmes like Man Alive series, and then Braden's Week, Bernard Braden. So who was the producer who decided to get you on screen? He was a lovely Welshman called John Lloyd. Not the John Lloyd that's around now, a different John Lloyd. He looked um, like Woody Allen, actually, and he was w- as witty as w- Woody Allen. He had worked with Bernard Braden in ITV... And when Bernie came over to the BBC, John said what had worked very well in the past when he'd produced was um, putting the researchers into the show. So he did that with me and my friend John Pittman, who had already been drafted onto the show as researchers. We didn't take it seriously. John took it more seriously than me because John wanted to be a reporter. I wanted to be a producer. So I just thought it was a blip. So perhaps you, because you were more relaxed, perhaps mm. you came across even better. The thing was, we were both quite relaxed because mm. we'd been behind the scenes, behind the camera, quite some time. And I always recommend that for people who do want to become reporters or presenters, that if you can start in a production role, learning your trade, learning what makes a story, um, then if you do end up in front of cameras, you will be relaxed because it'll be a context that you really are quite familiar with, used to. So that was the early 70s. So Braden's Week um, evolved into That's Life in 1973. And that was simply because Bernard Braden went back to Canada. You're right. He was given a fantastic offer by a new channel that was opening up in Canada, asked to do the same show, Braden's Week, over there, and did. But the letters from viewers kept coming into the BBC and we thought, well, maybe we could create, not Braden's Week, but a version of a consumer show. So was there no consideration that you could move to Canada as well? Was, it, was that discussed at all? Never. <laughs> OK. <laughs> not by me. Actually, recently I have fallen in love with Canada. I adore Canada and I'm going there on holiday quite soon. So... Mm. My life could have been rather different. I think it's a super country, but it wasn't on. It wasn't offered, and had it been offered, I wouldn't have accepted. Okay, fair enough. But obviously, that the producer who um, got you on screen. Uh, I, would you say, looking back, that was the moment that absolutely changed everything? I mean, obviously, you ha- you had to sort of engineer yourself to be in that position anyway, but. Um, I think what changed me was working on a consumer show because that is a very particular relationship with viewers. You have to earn their trust. When you've got it, 
They will talk to you about their lives. And you will find that you can give their voices a big platform. So that means you will be providing viewers with helpful information, changing things, hopefully for the better. Now, if I'd never appeared in the show, if I'd only been a researcher or a producer, it would still have had that effect on me. So for me, that was the major opportunity, being able to work on a consumer program. And have some control. And have some capacity to storytell in a way that would affect people's lives for the better. That's what I found the challenge and enjoyed. And now more malpractice mishaps and misprints which go to prove that's life. You are kind. Thank you very much indeed. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. We would like to thank you for all the letters you've sent us this week. We've discovered a brilliant new slimming cure we must tell you about. It's guaranteed to slim one particular part of your anatomy, your wallet. Can I ask, is there anyone in our audience tonight who owes their life to Nicholas Winton? You remember Catherine's family were determined that no other child should die as she did. And they felt the time had come for us all to act to try and stamp out bullying from our schools. That night, she had the heart-lung transplant and you know she's already out of intensive care. Tell us what you have on a Thursday, Prince. Oh, yeah. What's your skippy, Prince? Yeah. What? <laughs> Last week, Matthew Barden here challenged any viewers to see if they could do it better than him. He does it brilliantly. Show them exactly what it is, Matthew. Yeah, what's what's a young What do you think about hairy chest? Oh, they're not too bad. They get stuck in your teeth, don't they? <laughs> How would you describe that life to, say, somebody living on Mars who's never seen it? A very peculiar programme. <laughs> and also how it evolved from the initial, it was pretty well a purely consumer programme initially, and it changed a lot. Yes. The clever thing I did was invent the title. Because if you call it That's Life, you can put anything in it. Mm-hmm. So it was a really nice, wide category. And it meant that although we did start with faulty washing machines and cars that broke down and boots that fall to bits. We then, when um, Debbie Hardwick rang the office and told us that unless her toddler son, Ben, had a transplant, he would die in a couple of weeks, we could put that story into the programme too. Isn't it amazing if you think back and realise that before Ben Hardwick had his liver transplant, There were no life-saving heart transplants or heart-lung or liver transplants for any child in Britain because there were no child donors. You may like to know that his memorial fund has raised more than £280,000 and that's gone towards saving other children's lives and helping very ill and disabled children. And, you know, I don't know where that story would go now. If I look across the board, maybe the one show? If it went on the one show, it would reach between four and five million viewers. And I guess social media campaigns and things like that. 
I have no idea what they reach, mm. but we reached 18 million viewers. So we got Ben his transplant and changed actually transplantation medicine in this country because transplantation had more or less stopped. Mm. So um, we brought it back to life. That show was a massive power of good. It was almost mm. like, you know, the moral compass of a nation. That's how I sort of look at it. Is that rather a grand way of explaining it? Yes, that is a bit grand. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what I mean. I mean, you know, you were always sort of um, highlighting people who, you know, were hypocrites or, or uh, who had um, caused upset or... Well, I suppose we did. We told stories that the viewers had alerted us to. Mm. Um, but we tried not to preach. Okay. You know, I... Um, I think the way you treat your viewers... Hugh Weldon, who was someone who trained me, he was head of programmes at the BBC. Of course, yeah. Uh, fantastic man. He said, always assume in your viewers maximum intelligence, minimum information. So you must never take their factual information in the programme. You must never assume viewers know stuff, because they may not. But you must never assume they're stupid, because they won't be. In fact, I went to a lecture when I was training and Hugh said, your viewer is going to be much more intelligent, actually, than you are because you'll be riven with nerves and a bit tense and worried. They'll be relaxed on their sofa and so they'll be quicker and brighter than you at that moment. So don't patronise them. What fantastic advice. It's just so obvious as well, isn't it, when you think about it? I know, I know. He was brilliant. Mm. And... Um, also, I've always found it's never any good making programmes for, for them rather than us. I think that's Simon Cowell's great strength. He makes programmes that he would love to watch. And you can tell he's, he's passionately involved in the programmes he's on. It's funny, I was having a conversation with uh, this chap, Mickey Fisher, who's a scriptwriter for Amblin in, in, in Hollywood, and he said uh, one of his bits of advice was write the show that you would want to see um it so is it's, it, it translates mm, no it has you have to because otherwise you do start to patronize or you do start to talk down to people and really what you've got to do is treat your audience with respect and they will then relate to the material you're offering them some of the um issues you dealt with though paedophilia i mean was there, was there any pressure above to, to, to say, hang on, this is a, a more of a fluffy show than a, than a serious panorama show? Was there any, ever any pressure from above to say, hey, I don't think you should be doing this particular item? Yeah, yeah there was one of the controllers of BBC One who tried to stop us telling these stories, uh, which was quite interesting. Any names? <laughs> Uh, strangely, amnesia has struck me. <laughs> he wasn't the greatest controller of BBC One that the BBC ever appointed. Right, I'm going to go through them all now. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting, but you, you managed to fend him off? Um, well, clearly. Temporarily. Okay. Mm. okay. Oh, right. <laughs> right, clunk. Um, Scratch and sniff. With Nick Randall. Something filmed here every week. I don't care whether you filmed here for the last ten years. If you don't move, I shall arrest you. You're arrested, dear. Sorry. Yeah. I, I've just been arrested for handing out back to <laughs> Let's talk about being arrested. I mean, that was that was amazing. And uh, 
I mean, just it, it, it was suggested by some people that, oh, it was all set up and everything. But, but clearly, when I reviewed it recently, it, it, it just something that happened. And it was caught on camera. You're completely right. I always say if we had done it for publicity, I would have gone to the hairdresser first because it was pouring <laughs> with rain. And I looked. You were totally, a bit bedraggled, I must have been. Totally bedraggled. <laughs> but I have to accept the fact that if I die at a time when people want in any way to put together an obit for me, there's no question that that clip of me being arrested and climbing into the wrong door of the black <laughs> Mariah, getting in the front next to the driver, so mm. the policeman had to get in the back where the convicts go, that will, that will be the final glimpse of me that viewers ever get. There's no question. And just to remind everybody, I think you were, um, the, the great British public were sampling bat soup. That's right. Mm. And I was arrested for willful obstruction by a gentleman, a police officer whose name was A. Herbert. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. I guess the headlines were Bat's Life or something like that, presumably. Probably. Mm. Probably. Um, history doesn't relate at the moment, but I'm sure if I looked it up, I'd see something like that. She licked her lips, she felt sublime. She switched off Gardner's question time. Barry cringed in fear and dread as Frida grabbed his tie and said, Let's do it, let's do it, do it while the mood is right. I'm feeling appealing, I really got an appetite. Victoria Woods obviously was uh, on your show in the early days, you know, absolute iconic comedian and more wonderful writer sadly missed what are your memories of her i thought she was wonderful i thought she was wonderful from the moment i saw her on a talent show i think it was new faces where she was discovered um that's obviously why we invited her to do the show i thought she was brilliant and the way her talent blossomed into so many different areas became a playwright um, all sorts, and as you say, sorely missed. Why she wasn't a dame in her lifetime, mm. I do not know. I'm sure it would have happened. They, they just didn't get there inside. Well, the problem is, you see, people who make us laugh sometimes are underrated. You know, where was Sir Eric Morecambe? Yeah, totally. It's weird, isn't it? And Brucey, you know, was in his late 80s, I think, when he got his knighthood. So I think we have a... We ought to take laughter more seriously <laughs> because, actually, it affects people's lives. You know, we really love the comedians because they create happiness in our lives. So certainly, Victoria Wood, in my mind, um, she's definitely dame. She might be Her Majesty. We had, I had a wonderful experience with her. She um, invited me to the first night of Acorn Antiques, the musical. And it said on the invitation, dress hygienic. I suppose because Mrs. Overall and all that. Yes. So I was going with a friend and he arrived rather late. Um, so we had to leave in a bit of a hurry. And I thought, wait a minute, dress hygienic. I was in an evening dress. So I grabbed some marigold gloves from under the sink. <laughs> Got in the taxi, arrived late, so everybody else had gone in. Um, there was a, a bank of paparazzi, you know, hopefully still waiting. So I dragged on the marigold gloves and in my plunging evening dress, waved to them. 
and uh, went in and t- to discover nobody else had paid any attention to the <laughs> dress instructions at all. And Scylla Black was looking extremely nice in a black leather jacket. Anyway, I told... Um, oh, that's hilarious. Yes, I, I told Ms. Wood what I'd done, and she, she did laugh. <laughs> but then um, my daughter rang me up and said, Mum, do you want the good news or the bad news? And I said... Give me the good news. And she said, the good news is you're in Heat magazine. I said, terrific. She said, the bad news is you're in a column called What Were They Thinking? (laughs) And there was a picture of me in evening dress with marigold gloves, waving. So I could see that it was a bit mysterious. But, I mean, it makes absolute sense to wear marigold gloves for the opening night of Acorn Antiques. And I I, I stand with you, Esther, on that. Thank you. Thank you for your support. (laughs) You're listening to Dame Esther Ransom on SNS Online. Now, if you'll briefly excuse my indulgence, I'd like to play one of my personal favourite That's Life moments. Plus, I've always wanted to turn to my right and say this. Esther. It seems a French researcher has done some work and discovered that kissing shortens your life. Every kiss means you shorten your life by three minutes and you catch 250 different kinds of bacteria. So the researcher suggested other safer methods of demonstrating affection, like blowing in your ear. Chris and I went out onto the streets to see whether this news would persuade anyone to give up kissing entirely. According to this French research, any kissing shortens your life, causes stress and is bad for you. Oh. What a load of old cobblers there. Quite ridiculous. You think so? Of course. More the better, eh? You like a lot of kissing? Oh, can't get enough. Have you heard the latest news that uh, some French research has discovered that kissing is dangerous? I always believe that to be the case. Really? Oh, yes. Kissing? Why? Well, it leads to other things. (laughs) Well, that's what you say. I've got that sort of romantic lip. My lip, you see, which is undoubtedly, which appeals to most women. They're all waiting to be kissed. Now, if anybody would like to be kissed, don't you keep keeping an old leak you? Would you like to be kissed? Yeah, you are. I told you, I'm going to volunteer. Look at this, son. Okay. You're clearly irresistible. Uh, pardon? You're clearly irresistible. I know that, I know that. It's the deodorant I get. Brute. Brute's the stuff. If you have brute, you do anything. Did you enjoy that, madam? Say yes. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm afraid it's terribly bad for you. It is? Why? A French researcher has discovered you get an awful lot of germs from kissing. I'm the one with the cold. <laughs> to kiss or not to kiss? Until recently, Sheena Easton, a 19-year-old drama student from Glasgow, was just another hopeful, another pretty girl with a good voice who had dreams of becoming a pop star. She knew that it would be a long, hard climb to the top, but suddenly there's a chance to leave her bedsit high above Glasgow and be signed up by EMI. Let's um, briefly move to the big time. Obviously gets asked about a lot because Sheena Easton, her whole career stemmed from that show. It did. She got very bored with being reminded of that. <laughs> OK. But I did see her fairly recently in 42nd Street, I think, where she played one of the leads. Very talented young woman and very rich, <laughs> thanks to me. Why I didn't take 10% of it, <laughs> yeah. I, I will never know, but I didn't. 
I mean, when you met her at the time, mm. did you get that sort of vibe that you know, she was going? Yeah, there was no doubt. Ah. I mean, when you see that sort of talent, it's pretty unmistakable. Mm. But you see, you have, you have actually to create an opportunity where you can meet these people. That's why I love things like Britain's Got Talent, because that does give unknown people an opportunity really to be seen and heard. Whereas what she'd done in the past was she'd sent a tape to a record company who, of course, had not even listened to it, but it had gone straight in the bin. So I was very pleased that we were able to give her that showcase. She went straight from that to um, recording one of the Bond songs because Cubby Broccoli, whom I met, actually told me that it was because he'd seen the big time and thought she was brilliant. So, yes, that was a, a very happy ending to that story. That's wonderful. SNSonlineshow.com, your brand new one-stop shop for all things SNS. Take a tour through our wide and diverse collection of shows and listen in to our exclusive range of in-depth interviews spanning the popular arts, featuring actors, writers, journalists, stand-up comedians, musicians and more. You can also enjoy our shorter bite-sized series covering vibrant new theatre, television and book releases. And with our Arts Lifestyle Remit, you get to explore issue-based topics including health, mental health, women's rights around the world and LGBTQ. Contact us with both your comments and suggestions for future guests. And don't forget to read up on our blog, regularly updated with articles and photographs. A forum where everyone is welcome to contribute. SNSonlineshow.com, your one-stop shop for all things SNS. What are your other memories of that's life? Any any particular moments that stand out for you? Obviously, there must be so many. There's there, one I'm thinking of. I'm going to see. Well, there's talking dogs. There's cats <laughs> that play ping pong. There's uh, Nicholas Winton who rescued a generation of Czech Jewish children. Um, was that difficult to, to to get together? I mean, that was hugely. That was incredibly orchestrated. It was very good, wasn't it? Um, piece of history, if you like, on television. We were thrilled with it. Back here is the list of all the children. This is Vera Diamant, now Vera Gissing. We did find her name on his list. Vera Gissing is with us here tonight. Hello, Vera. And uh, I should tell you that you are actually sitting next to Nicholas Winton. Hello. <laughs> Hanging on to your handkerchief because we found two more of those children. One of them is called Hanush Schnabel. He was only 11 when he came over here. We have his passport with all the official stamps on it. I don't know if you can see. This is how he got out. He told us. I don't know how my rescue was arranged. I had no idea when I left my parents at Prague Station that I would never see them again. My older brother was supposed to come here in September, but war broke out and I never saw him again either. I hoped all through the war that they would survive, but they were gassed in a concentration camp. I've often wondered who was responsible for organising my rescue. I would dearly love to meet him and thank him for helping us children without any hope of acknowledgement. 
Hanush's name is on Nicholas Winton's list. They call him Hans, there, you see. Hanush is here tonight. So you too can thank Mr. Winton. Can I ask, is there anyone in our audience tonight who owes their life to Nicholas Winton? If so, could you stand up, please? Mr. Winton, would you like to turn round? He was an extraordinary man. And you did an, another programme about him, a separate yeah. programme later? Documentary I made mm. for mm. ITV, retracing um, the journey in reverse with one of the children he'd saved going back to Prague. Mm. No, it was... He, he was a fascinating man. Not least because um, he didn't tell anyone what he'd done. Yeah. Once he'd done it and saved these hundreds of children, he then got on with the rest of his life. Mm. So it came as a real surprise to those children now grown up to discover who was responsible. And I think that, that is now trending on, on all yeah. the social media. It, it, True. You, yeah. True, absolutely. SNS Online presents the soundtrack of your life. Let's uh, have a brief pause and we'll go to the soundtrack of your life where you get a chance to pick a track that might resonate personally, professionally or just because it makes your feet tap. Well, one of my favourite pop songs, I think it was written by Randy Newman, is Simon Smith and His Amazing Dancing Bear. And I just like it. It's very um, light-hearted. I'm against dancing bears when I think about it. I mean, I'm not sure that that's a kind way to treat bears, but um, I think Simon Smith was probably quite nice to his. set and Simon Smith and his amazing dancing bear. You're listening to Dame Esther Ransom on SNS Online. And if you'd like to comment on this or any other show, then please look us up at snsonlineshow.com. Time now for 10 top Ransom-related nuggets of information. 
That's Life was influential in a number of different ways, including the introduction of the video link for child witnesses in court procedures, the reintroduction of donor cards, and of course, the creation of Childline. One of That's Life's earliest con men was a certain Robert Maxwell in the days when he was sending dodgy encyclopedia salesmen out to an unsuspecting public. In 1988, Esther created a television series called Hearts of Gold, celebrating people who had performed unsung acts of outstanding kindness or courage. She later would create the annual Children of Courage segment for BBC's Children in Need programme. From 1996 to 2002, Esther presented her own talk show, Esther, on BBC Two. After the death of Esther's husband, filmmaker Desmond Wilcox, she made a landmark programme on palliative care, How to Have a Good Death, for BBC Two. Recently, she has campaigned on behalf of hospice care and better care for the elderly and terminally ill, as well as raising awareness of ME, or chronic fatigue syndrome. In addition to her television career, she is also a patron or vice president of close to 60 charities, mainly involving children, vulnerable older people and disabled people. Esther has featured on a wide variety of television shows over the years, including Piers Morgan's Life Stories, This Morning, The One Show, whilst guesting on celebrity editions of Cash and the Attic, The Chase, Pointless, Antique Road Trip and First Dates. Esther was a contestant in both Strictly Come Dancing and I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, whilst also putting in a powerhouse performance as Edith Piaf in a celebrity edition of Stars in Their Eyes. On the 26th of May 2009, Esther announced her intention to stand as an independent candidate for Parliament, made against the backdrop of the parliamentary expenses scandal. And at the May 2010 election, she came fourth with 4.4% of a vote behind the three main parties. The fallout of a Jimmy Savile child abuse scandal led to a grilling on the BBC News by Martin Croxall, who suggested Esther could have done more back in the day when rumours of Savile's sexual appetites were rife in Television Centre. Esther robustly defended herself, saying that she could not act without proof, and gossip in itself wasn't evidence. She did, however, acknowledge that the BBC as a whole could have done more, but tackling a powerful name like Savile, someone who had achieved national treasure status through his presenting and charity work, made it a particularly intimidating and virtually impossible prospect without clearly required concrete proof. Esther became an OBE in 1991 for services to broadcasting, before being promoted to CBE for services to children and young people and then Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire for services to children and older people through Childline and the Silver Line. She has also received a number of professional awards, including the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Women in Film and Television Organisation and the Royal Television Society Special Judges Award for Journalism. She was the first woman to receive a Dimbleby Award from BAFTA for Factual Presentation, and she also received the Snowden Award for Services to Disabled People. And finally, at number 11 in our top 10, well, we couldn't fit them all into just 10, Esther has been flying high yet again in a brand new Channel 5 show with distinct echoes of that's life called House Trap, where she does what she does best, champion the underdog and expose wrongdoings via scammers, con men, unscrupulous companies and botched builders. Go Dame Esther! Let's get to Childline and uh, the origins of that. 
Well, we were doing a, a programme which I suggested to the BBC about child abuse called Child Watch. Child Watch, a special live programme coming to BBC One. I never told anyone what happened, because no one ever asked me. Adults sometimes don't believe children, but they should do, because they don't make up stories like that. Childwatch has undertaken one of the biggest national surveys into cruelty to children. Tragically, well over a million children in this country are suffering now as a result of cruelty. Victims like Catherine, who wants today's children to get the help and support she never had. On Childwatch, we shall be launching the first national free telephone service for children in trouble or danger, and looking at positive ways of helping them. Help us keep our children safe. Child Watch, this Thursday at 8.30 and 9.30 on BBC One. And in order to do it, we asked adults, viewers of That's Life, actually, to talk to us if, well, fill up a survey, actually, if they had suffered any kind of abuse or neglect as children. But because we knew there were a lot of viewers to that edition of That's Life, because there always were, and because I thought, well, there might be children suffering now, we decided to open helplines, which were jammed for 48 hours with children talking about abuse they'd never disclosed to anyone before. And that was, if you like, a light bulb moment for me because I realised that that was more important than anything else I'd ever done. So I talked about it to the team who was, were putting together the Childwatch programme. And, um, yes children would use um, a helpline. But they said it um, will be very difficult to put together because, you know, the, the demand might be so great, etc. And they were right. I mean, even now, 32 years later, we still can't answer all the children who need us. I'd never considered life without him, but they got cancer. I didn't want to lose him. I did everything I could for him. He shut the door at night, and that's the last you'll see of anybody till maybe tomorrow, if anybody comes. But you don't know. You just hope. Good afternoon. You're through to the Silver Line. My name's Julie. How can I help? Well, the Silver Line um, really arose out of the fact that I moved here uh, about eight years ago in this flat um, where I live alone and I'd never done that before and I didn't like it and I wrote about my feelings for the Daily Mail and was inundated with response from all kinds of people who were on their own and didn't like it but obviously there is a stigma about admitting to loneliness, because some of them have said it was brave of me to be honest about the way I felt. And I got so many letters that I was asked to um, attend a conference called the Campaign to End Loneliness. And that's when I got my second light bulb moment. And I said to them um, that 25 years earlier, I'd been talking to a different group of experts. Then it was experts in child protection. Now I was looking at a group who were experts in looking after older people. Different stigma, then it was the stigma of child abuse. Now it was the stigma of loneliness. Then one answer had been a helpline, childline. 
So would an answer to help with loneliness be another helpline? And all the experts said yes. So I, I found a bit of money from the big lottery and comic relief. Well done. And found a really brilliant CEO who still runs it. And we've taken about two and a half million calls. Can I just say, you're amazing. We all <laughs> love you, Esther. We do. Well, some, some I think. Get, Ignore them. Well, some get quite annoyed by me, which I could understand. Particularly if they like dance and they saw me in Strictly. <laughs> <laughs> but Anton, I mean, was very tolerant with me. Yeah, absolutely. Even more tolerant, I think, with some of his other partners. You show great trust in your partner. Your timing was a little bit off. Your technique wasn't there. But you certainly told the story of this dance. Yep, yep. <laughs> Strictly was one of the most difficult things I've ever done in my life, as I have no muscle memory. I'm about as good at dancing as I am at cooking. So that... Um, in fact, I turned it down, and I only... So no, no bake-off, then? <laughs> No, isn't it interesting that? Yeah. Yes, that's the other one I haven't done. Um, but I loved going into the jungle. That was really fascinating. The public have decided the fifth person they want to leave, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, 2008, is... Esther. Ah! How are you feeling? Um, I'm feeling uh, very sorry to leave because are they are such lovely people there. Uh -huh. And the whole environment is so gorgeous. Mm. But um, I think it's the right moment. Yeah. Right. I yes. really do. We're going to chat some more, but before All we right. do, let's have a look at your jungle highlights. Well, you can look. <laughs> they took, they take your watch away and your mobile phone away and you have to wake up when the sun comes up. Go to sleep when the sun goes down. It, um, I loved it. Somebody who's hoping to breathe new life into Parliament is broadcaster Essa Ranson, who's running as a self-styled anti-sleaze candidate. This is her take of the week. You may think, since I've spent a lifetime in television, that I'd be used to intrigue and jealousy and backbiting. But I can tell you, what I've learned in my short time in politics makes television look like a picnic. If you were Prime Minister, mm. what would you want to change? Well, the first thing I would do is I would bring in a law that says everybody must have fun at least once a day. Because the number of older people who ring the silver line, and when I say to them, what do you do for fun? They say to me, oh, I haven't had fun for 10 years, or fun's only for young people, which I don't agree with. So that's the first thing I'd do. Um, the second thing I would do is try and find a way of reaching out to young people who are in real danger, whether it's mental health, so they're suicidal or 
self-harming or suffering from eating disorders, or external danger like abuse or gangs or these terrible knife crimes. And I would try to restore in their lives a feeling that people care about them and that they're valued and that they are achieving. Because I think, unfortunately, the extended family doesn't seem to exist anymore. You do get a lot of isolation among young people and the impact of social media is sometimes to make them, ironically, to make them feel even more alone. So I think I would try and put together a serious commission under the Children's Commissioner, whom I know for England, great lady, Anne Longfield, to have a look across the board at ways of restoring young people's sense of well-being. If you compare British children with children in the rest of Europe, ours are less happy, more insecure, more at risk. Mm, just dreaming of a parallel world when Dame Esther Ransom was our Prime Minister. Other political figures take note. <clears throat> anyway, moving swiftly on to some more Esther-related TV appearances. Esther was the subject of an episode of Who Do You Think You Are in 2008. Her paternal line was traced back as far as the 1760s to an established Jewish neighbourhood in Warsaw. Roger, what interests me about my great-grandfather is that he went off to America because his client's money disappeared. Now, was it a model or was it a crime? And let us not forget her powerhouse performance in Celebrity Stars in Their Eyes when Dame Esther Ransom transformed into Edith Piaf. Tes yeux qui font baisser le mien Un rire qui se perd sur sa bouche Voilà le portrait sans retouche De l'homme auquel j'appartiens Quand Esther as Edith. Pretty impressive stuff. Well, they do say that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Now, whether Esther agrees with that or not is another matter. 
but a number of television programs did just that during That's Life's 21-year run, most notably Not for Nine O'Clock News and Spitting Image. Mr. and Mrs. Robinson from Harrow on the Weald went into their local electricity board showroom to buy a new fridge freezer. They paid cash for it, and within four days it was installed and took pride of place in their kitchen. All went well for a couple of weeks. The milk was cold, the food stayed fresh, and, and even the light worked when you opened the door. But then the trouble started. On February the 19th, the Robinson's seven-year-old son George got an attack of appendicitis and had to be rushed to hospital. They rang the electricity board, who responded, This has got nothing to do with us. First of all, I'd like to thank Mr. Wilcox of Richmond, who sent us this cutting from his local paper. Hot cross buns, six p. As well as this naughty carrot that looks like a penis. Not the nine o'clock news and spitting image there, playing the imitation game. Personally speaking, I prefer the original. I'm just going to talk about that slide again. The fact that it really seems to unite the nation. It's a massive, massive force for good. I just feel we need a programme like that. I feel we need a number of programmes like that today. I know we've had Watchdog, but Watchdog doesn't seem to have the same sort of heart. And I think that's because they don't have the lighter items and the studio audience and going into the street. It's still a very worthy programme, and I'm not sort of um, putting it down at all. But. Well, that's a programme, isn't it? It's a strong consumer programme. I mean, I um, think that came from uh, Nationwide. It was a strand in Nationwide. It yeah. was. Mm. It was. Yes, indeed it was. Now, That's Life was a show. Mm. It was in show business. It had, as you say, the theatre was where we made it, Shepherd's Bush Theatre. It had a very big audience, live audience. We did it as live. And we had, yeah, we had laughter and tears and everything in between. So, and a lot of animals, <laughs> a lot of dogs. Uh, it's quite interesting because I was in a programme very recently which was um, created by a friend of mine who worked on That's Life, but it wasn't the same. So there's no, uh, no hint of... Uh... Two people have tried recently and both have failed. Mm. It's not as easy as it may look. <laughs> well, the final That's Life was broadcast on Sunday the 19th of June, 1994, with a false finishing time to fool Esther and some very special guests, including Sir David Frost... Something else that's unscheduled, which is, tell us what you're thinking at this moment. I think I don't deserve any of that. I'm thinking that I've had the honour and privilege of standing in this studio, just providing a link between the wonderful people who wrote to us because they wanted to help, and the amazing people who watched and were able to help. And obviously I'm going to do the best I can. And I'm thinking, is my mascara falling all the way down? <laughs> <laughs> Are we going to hear the band I was about to... I think uh, you should introduce it. Should I? Well, I think I was about to say, we began all those years ago the way we're going to end, with the Hanwell Brass Band to plan us away from us all here in the studio. Good night.
Well, in 2018, Esther, alongside her daughter, Rebecca Wilcox, created a 13-date live UK show, the That's Life UK Tour, where Rebecca interviewed Esther on stage about her life and work, alongside video clips and an audience Q&A. I managed to catch one of the last dates, and it was wonderful. But are they doing any more? Well, we are talking about it. It was um, fun. We enjoyed it. For me, it was an excuse to see more of her because that was a pleasure for me. Um, we're talking about going to Edinburgh, see whether that appeals to her. But she has got these two lovely boys, one age six, one age four, which both she and I like to spend a lot of time with. So I'm not, I'm, I don't know. We like doing it. It was great fun. Whether we'll do any more, we're still discussing. Are you ever planning to slow down, Esther? I plan to slow down, and then somehow the plans don't work out. Which is great for us. Okay. Esther Ransom, thank you so much. It only remains for me to give you, um, as we do with all our guests, uh, your celebrity goodie bag. I'll just pass it over. Oh, and um, apart from the usual suspects, uh, chockies and champagne, oh. there are um, some sausages there, uh, as a nod to the, the That's Life <laughs> dog, yeah. and also a tin of... Which soup is it? Well, I hope it's not bat. It's the nearest equivalent we could get. The bats um, are endangered. I would never be allowed to do that now. It's actually um, oxtail soup, but we thought that would be the nearest um, in terms of flavour. Well, I, I can see what you mean, yes. <laughs> I think actually oxes aren't endangered, so I think I'm safe there. Oh, well, good. thank you. How very kind. And you get our badge as well. So Esther Ransom, Dame Esther Ransom, thank you so much. Well, a great pleasure. Thank you. Heads you win. Tells you lose, you pay your dues, cause that's what it's all about. Break or bust, cake or crust, yeah, that's life. Some make hay, some make do, it's up to you to stand up or crawl about. Sure, it's rough, sure, it's tough, but that's